This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, makers of Australian sea salt since 1948. I think kitchens for me was a way of getting away from my mates and having a reason to go, to, oh, I need to go to work, you know, I'm working on the weekend, I can't do that, and I can't go steal cars and, you know, go and smoke dope and get locked up. As a someone who had an accent and had a grade 11 education, um, it's an environment. If you work hard and you're committed and you read and you, and you, uh, you work your ass off, you can, you can do quite well. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Many chefs spend their entire careers mastering their craft in a singular manner. Once they've found their voice and their cuisine, they refine and refine. There are a few that have the ability to reinvent themselves continually and deliver new experiences that set a new benchmark of excellence. Ross Lusted is the chef owner of Woodcut Restaurant in Sydney. Ross, how are you going? Very good. Nice to talk to you, hi. Mate, it's very good to catch up. You are running quite a large establishment, very different to the days of the Bridge Room, which was a pretty small restaurant and kitchen. Um, how does life compare to to those times? Oh, look, I think, um, you know, life life's a funny thing. And uh, I think as humans, if you can adapt to your environment, um, I do everything uh, for a reason, obviously. And the bridge room was for a reason. And it was what it was and it did what it did. It probably did a bit more than it should have done uh, for the size of the restaurant and the size of that kitchen. Um, But it was one thing that I needed to do. And um, it got me onto the journey where I am now. And this is this is where I am now is much more in my comfort zone, to be honest. You've had this incredible ability to reinvent yourself with multiple career changes and and, uh, establishments over your career and really made a success of them and also gone out on the top with them um, to move on to something else. What's the drive there with all these continual evolution and change? Look, for me personally, I've never never – identified with I'm a chef or I'm an artist or I'm a business person or I'm a property developer or a hotelier or whatever. I think opportunities come your way and you find them as well. And um, I've never said, well, I just don't know that I can really do that. I don't have the skills to do that. Um, I'm very inspired by people who, um, you know, you take a Richard Branson. What, what, what's Richard Branson's qualifications? You know, he runs airlines, he runs dot-coms, he runs tel- telcos. You know, I think at the end of the day, um, I'm a creative person and where I find um, myself, I'm drawn towards things, things that really interest me. And I think if they interest you, you take the skills that you have and the skills that you've learned, and that might be in a kitchen, that might be on a building site, that might be at art school, um, and then you apply that to to whatever is sort of in your focus at the moment. Let's go back to the early days, back what food was like for you, and when you first got interested in food and, and realised that would be a career for you. 
Um, I never really got interested in food. I think I got in- interested in the environment. Um, I'm, I grew up on a, you know, in the country in South Africa, and um, it's only when I really started cooking Thai food with David Thompson that I realized that, wow, I had this whole cultural um, heritage within South Africa, um, which is, you know, Cape Malay food and what what we sort of identify with as Malaysian Indonesian and then it has the Dutch um, and English influence in South Africa. Um, but those were my memories of South Africa. And then we moved to Brisbane and never really my, – my parents, um, I hope they're not listening, but we're never terribly, terribly good cooks. Um, but we always ate everything um, that was in season and everything that was fresh. And I remember, you know, eating a rock melon in South Africa and re- realizing that that's just how rock melon was always, you know, should always be until I came to Australia and that you could, you know, kill someone with a rock melon. It was that hard. And um, <laughs> so it was sort of those things that I suppose I remember the spices and I remember the smells and I remember going to a Chinese restaurant and I think I was seven or eight years old and I ordered the, you know, stir-fried beef with black bean and my dad was like, you're not going to eat that. And I was determined, um, always had that bit of determined in me but um and I so so when we came to Australia and lived in Brisbane um I was going to be a dentist um, wow. yeah the white the white jacket's probably the only thing I kept out of that but, um yeah and um so it was sort of predetermined I suppose you know dad's an engineer and mum's an artist and a, and a teacher and um, so we sort of grew up in a really creative household. I always made sculpture. Um, we had, you know, had welders and made things out of um, steel and timber and, and all that more as, a, as just I enjoyed it and, and painted. And um, our next door neighbor actually worked in a restaurant and they, they needed someone to help on the Christmas holidays. And I said, yeah, I, you know, I, I can do that. And... Um, it was it was like another world. There was hot waitresses. There were gay people. You could get home at midnight and no one question anything. Alcohol. The kitchen hands used to go out the back and you know smoke a massive joint and listen to Led Zeppelin. There, there was there was like a dent in one of the sinks because the guy's knee. He was so stoned. He used to bang his knee into listening to Zeppelin on the headset, and it was just like this is where I fit in. This is freaking awesome, you know. And I think the one thing, um, I, I was put up a year when I came from South Africa um, because the, we, we had national service in South Africa. So you go back, um, you do 10 years of education as opposed to 12. So they cram it in. Um, so it was probably, it was a real challenge for me being put up a year because um, all the kids were a year older and then... I went to public school, um, and some kids were kept down, so they were two years older. So when you walk on the rug- when you walk on the rugby field, it's like fuck, that- I'm just not tackling that guy. There's no one. <laughs> I was like a bean, you know. <laughs> so it was a. I, I found I struggled with school in Australia. So, you know, I shaved my head and were, wore big. Uh, 
Doc Martin boots and had braces and, you know, hung out with all the punks and skinheads. And that was, and that, you know, that's the music I grew up with in South Africa as well. There was a lot of, you know, Bob Marley was banned because um, of his political voice. Uh, Mandela was still in prison in South Africa. Um, Mum and Dad had issues with apartheid, so we left um, South Africa. But it was my, it was the music that I I was drawn to and still am really reggae, ska, punk. Um, so I had a, <clears throat> a sort of little bit of a got into a bit of trouble, and I think kitchens for me was a way of getting away from my mates and having a reason to go. To, oh, I need to go to work. You know, I'm working on the weekend. I can't do that. And I can't go steal cars and you know go and <laughs> smoke dope and get locked up. So for me, kitchens were escape, and, and as a someone who had an accent and had a grade eleven education, um, I it's an environment. If you work hard and you're committed and you read and you and you uh, you work your ass off, you can you can do quite well. You mentioned working with David Thompson. Can you take us back to that time? What was it like in that kitchen? Oh, I'm still having therapy, but um, <laughs> you know, it's I, you know, I, I, I worked hard. I got, I, um, sort of. People have asked me, you know, how long do you need to be an apprentice, and then a, um, a commie, and then a chef to party. I said, I don't really know. I went from being thrown out of culinary school to um, being a head chef at 19. Um, so I've never, I've never really done the journey, um, and I'm not being arrogant about that. I just, I literally took a job with a cookbook in my back pocket. I was head chef of a restaurant in a five-star hotel in Brisbane, and the the corporate chef turned around to me one day and he said, "You really have no idea, do you?" And I said, "No." And he said, "The fact that you agree that you had no idea," he said, "is the reason you still have a job." Um, but I said, "I'm really." I just want to do it. I want to. I want to work it out. And he actually took me under his wing, and and uh, he was a two star chef from Toulouse in um, in France. And you know, he's the guy who said, "This is what caviar tastes like, and this is what goat's cheese is." And eat this piece of pate every day. I know you hate it, but you'll get to like it. And explained what the difference were, you know, with capers and you know, real capers and and you know, why you use Armagnac in cooking and, you know, made, made, made um, I don't know how much I can digress here, but we, we would make a, we would make a velouté, which is generally, you know, flour, um, white wine, butter, and then you add whatever stock you want to it and you whisk it all up and you have like a thick base sauce. So he would say, no, no, you do one part onion, one part leek, one part celeriac, one part fennel, you cook that, and then you add your white wine, reduce it by half, add your fish stock, reduce that, and then add the cream and blend that up. So no flour, no – so it was that time of – I suppose I'm pretty old. So I I learned how to cook, let's say, properly um, to understand how to make a, a hollandaise sauce and a proper reduction and make stocks and sauces and all that sort of stuff. And – that was my founding, that was my base, and that was my go-to all the time. Uh, sorry, it's a long-winded answer to your question, but um, so I would work, and I opened the Ritz-Carlton in Double Bay, and I worked for Neil um, at MCA very briefly, 
because um, mm. I thought he was an asshole and I left. <laughs> and uh, but we'll get back to that. And um, because there was no structure, I I went to MCA and there was no structure. There was. You know, everyone was doing their own thing. There was no recipes. There was no standardization. I just came out of this really formal, structured kitchen uh, with a with a very clear hierarchy um, and no grey areas. And uh, then I went to you know MCA with Neil, where you know everything was about actually cooking flavour. You know, I never really got it, and because um, it was all in the moment. You know, a piece of grilled octopus with tarotor and some torn parsley and a squeeze of lemon over it. It's like, what the fuck's that? You know, like, and where's the recipe for tarotor? Well, you just make it. You roast the walnuts and you blend it with garlic. And it was like, yeah, but where's the recipe? You know, it was like, well, just cook it, you know? So I, I had a meal. I went to Darley Street Thai and I had a meal. And this is Darley Street in Newtown, the original Darley Street. And um, obviously that's where it gets its name because it was in a pub in St. Peter uh, in, um, in Darley Street. And I went there and um, I had this crispy fish with sweet pork and green mango. And I remember Martin, the waiter, I didn't know his name at the time, but Martin brought this crispy fish to me and I said to him, oh, sorry, I ordered the crispy fish. And he turned around and said, darling, that is the crispy fish. And uh, in the only way that Martin could deliver that, and uh, which I didn't do very well, but um, overtly camp, the whole place was. Um, and but I had this meal, and I think I'd been cooking for about ten years, and I had no idea how they made this dish, and it disturbed me that much that I quit my job, um, and I well actually I was working six days a week at the Ritz Carlton. Um, those are the days before 38 hours and um, I only had Sundays off and I said to my, my now ex-wife, um, I'm going to go and work at Darley Street as a stagiaire on Sundays and needless to say my ex-wife but um, I went there on a Sunday and I turned up and there was this, this enormous guy called David King a lot of people won't remember David King um, unless you're uh, my age, but David King was one of the most talented chefs in Australia. Um, he won the Josephine Pignolet Award, incredibly humble, um, like an absolute freaking rock. You could never crack this guy. Um, I remember him putting his hand into a mincer making curry paste and he sort of removed one digit. Whoa. And he looked at me and he said, uh, Roscoe, can you come turn the machine off? And uh, I said, are you all right, Dave? And he said, I think I might need to get a Band-Aid. And I'm like, fuck, Dave, you need to go to the hospital. <laughs> it's like, but Dave was this just incredibly solid guy and he was at Daly Street. And um, I said, oh, I'm, I'm here, you know, me, bright and chirpy, walked in, you know, and this guy looked at me like, who's this fucking idiot? And I said, oh, I'm here to do a stage, you know. I spoke to Tomo and, you know, and oh, actually it was Chef Thompson. I spoke to Chef Thompson. He looked at me like, who's that? And uh, anyway, he said, well, I don't know anything about it. And I said, well, I'm here. And he, so he gave me like the biggest bag of chilies. I stood in the corner and I did the chilies. My hands, everything, my eyes, every part of me was burning. And I thought, this prick, I'm just going to not let him... You know, so anyway, we went through, he showed me nothing 
And I kept going back. I kept going back. And it was about the third or fourth Sunday. And I said, you know, he said something, he muttered something under his breath in Afrikaans. And I turned around and I answered him back in Afrikaans. And he said, where are you from? I said, where the fuck are you from? <laughs> and it was just like, and that was it. He was this, you know, just hard-assed um, Afrikaner that um, I, I suppose we had the same upbringing. And um, he'd just been through shit. I'd been through shit. And we bonded that day. And it was like, I said, like, why are you such a fucking arsehole? And he said, oh, he said, you're just one of these pricks from Rockpool who wants to come and get all the recipes and go off and, you know, I said, mate, I'm not interested in that. I said, I work at the Ritz-Carlton, you know. So it was just funny because we, we sort of had a really good connection and then I – and he said, the only reason you're here is so Tomo can go out on Saturday night and not have to come in on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a fact, you know. So I moved to Darley Street and in, in King's Cross and that – I mean, that's another whole story in itself um, – it was it was another another kitchen that was out of control. You know, Marty Boots was my apprentice. Um, who else was there? I mean, it, it was like the so many people um, who were. Stuart Halliday was uh, a young waiter. We used to deep fry. Um, he, he, Stewie could not stop eating shit, and every time there was something on the pass, he would eat it, and Tom would go off his dial. So one day we got like a scouring pad, cut it up into little pieces, deep fried it in batter, put it on the pass. And um, we were just watching heads down, you know, and Stewie would come in, oh, chef, do you want a coffee? Yeah, sure, thanks, Stewie, you know. And you could just see, you thought, this must be mm. pork or something, you know. So he steals a bit and then he actually ate it and then came <laughs> back and thought, that was a bit, maybe I've got a piece of gristle or something, you know, and we're just like going through our day. You know? <laughs> and it was just one of those kitchens. And he took another piece and then he opened it up and realised we were just all, you know, and then – I think Tomo threw oyster sauce at him in the middle of the restaurant one day. Um, you know, people shooting heroin in the back lane on your way to work in the morning and it was the cross and and we were, you know, 20 out of 20 in the, um, I think it was Financial Review, David Dale wrote the article and um, there was, it was off the charts, a kitchen where you were a number in the kitchen and every number in that kitchen had to be there. You you couldn't just call in sick or you couldn't just, you know, Dave Dave King would say, someone would walk in for a trial shift and Dave would just say, yeah, they're not going to make it. And the guy just walked in the door and put on his apron. <laughs> you know? and it, was, it was a really, it was a really, really hard kitchen. This episode of Deep in the Weeds is proudly supported by Olsen Salt, Australia's oldest family-owned salt company. It's probably one of the most sustainable industries on earth. There have been uh, salt fields in Africa and Europe for thousands of years that they're still taking salt off. And, you know, the product is beautiful and I'm really proud of it. Hi, I'm Alex Olson from Olson Sea Salt. Salt all over the world can taste differently and that's because salt has character in the same way that a wine has character from where it's grown. So salt from the Air Peninsula has a very fresh, clean, crisp flavour that some of the best chefs in Australia appreciate. 
My father took 10 years to develop the sea salt flakes and he didn't want to release them until they were good enough to be put on the world stage. And this is a justification of that 10 years of hard work that he put into making the sea salt flakes world standard and an affirmation to him that what he did and all those plans and all that hard work has not been in vain. For more information, go to olsons.com.au. You briefly mentioned your uh, experience working at the MCA with Neil and and you also spent time at Rockpool. Uh, tell us a bit about that time and and what you took from that period. Yeah, I'd, I'd, done, I'd done about three years at Rockpool and um, I never, I'd never envisaged working for Neil again. And um, Khan Dennis, who was the chef at Rockpool at the time, sort of put Neil and I back together and um, I think it was over quite a few beers and we told each other what we thought of each other and um, I ended up opening uh, Rockpool for Neil in Potts Point, which is now Miss G's, the building. Um, and from Rockpool, I was studying sculpture at the time and uh, it's all a bit of a blur of the years, but... I stuck a chisel through my hand and um, I couldn't work in the kitchen for six months. And at that time, we just, Neil had won the Qantas um, contract to do first-class food. So I ended up traveling the world with Sussman, um, going to Bangkok, Hong Kong, Singapore, Frankfurt, London, everywhere that uh, Qantas f- flew first class. And I worked with Neil on the menus and the rollout of the first class product. Yeah. Wow. So I did that for about a year and then ended up being the chef at Rockpool. And um, that, that, that was, you know, I remember, I remember um, re, uh, Sue Jenkins, who owned Accoutrement, put out a, a publication of the the chefs, you know, the 2021 great chefs of Australia. And it was Yanni Christus and Damien Pignolet, Philip Searle, Chris, I think Chrissy Manfield. No, I don't, don't know if Chrissy was in there, but Neil was in there. Um, Peter Doyle, Greg Doyle. And it was that sort of um, people that, for me, I always admired and, and looked up to. And, you know, Australia, we, we're so far from the rest of the world that I, that I think to be recognised, Australian chefs have worked much harder. I don't know if that's the right thing to say, but it's like almost. And maybe this is just me through my eyes, but always jumping on your box, going, "Hey, hey, look at us! We're we're down here. We're doing stuff that's really interesting," you know. And when when Australian chefs did come here, uh, sorry, when international chefs did come here, they're always blown away at the quality of the produce, the quality of the restaurants, the service, the food, the wine. And I think, I think Australia, and I've lived in 12 countries, so I've seen and travelled and, and a lot. And I, every time I come back to Australia, it's always been the benchmark for me. And Europe is definitely a benchmark and, and so is, is the US for me in terms of the scale of restaurants and the volume. And that's a little bit of what Woodcut is. And, you know, that, that idea that these big, businesses when Terence Conrad has had his restaurants in London and and looking at that and for me walking into Rockpool was that it was this incredibly international um, super creative food everything in the moment I mean Rockpool I have 53 chefs now 
um, in Woodcut, and at Rockpool there was 35, and they were, they were majority of them were apprentices. And I don't think I have one apprentice today, and that's telling. That's telling of our industry today. Um, but 35 apprentices. I remember we actually pulled them all out of TAFE. Neil had a. He just disagreed with what they were teaching them, and we sort of had this um, lunch where we invited these TAFE teachers to showcase what we were doing at Rockpool, and you know, 35 apprentices going. Um, one day a week is 35 days a week that we had to have staff out of our kitchen. Um, so Neil's argument was, well, if we can train them in pastry, if we can train them in our seafood, because at the time there was Wokpool in Potts Point, uh, not in Potts Point, there was Wokpool in Darling Harbour, and we had a full fish production facility there. If we could show the butchery, fishmongering, work with our fruit and veg suppliers, who was Matt Brown at the time, work in a bakery, you know, with uh, Victoire. Um, you know, all those sorts of things were why are we, why are we sending our, our people to TAFE when we, we could be training them in-house? And I remember the guy, one of the teachers who came from Brisbane for this lunch, he's the guy that actually said I'd never amount to being, being anything and um, from TAFE and... It just shows that our industry um, is constantly moving, and unless unless the rest of the institutions that support our industry are not constantly moving, then um, staff need to move from restaurant to restaurant. Everyone said to me, "Your CV is terrible because you keep jumping around." I'm like, "Yeah, but I've just learned everything. I think I can learn from that one kitchen." So, you, you, if you have to move. And for me, it's worked. For some people, it doesn't work. Um, but Rockpool was one of those restaurants where after Daly Street, Rockpool, um, it was yet again another chef, um, incredibly amazing palate, Neil, and um, just a true restaurateur, you know, in, in every sense. I think he was front of house as much as he was back of house in terms of the wine program. I learned a lot from Neil. I learned about marketing, about marketing yourself, about being ambitious. Um, I think Neil's opened more restaurants and closed more restaurants than a lot of people in Australia. And people might look at that a bad th as a bad thing. I just say that's ambition, that's putting it out there, that's having a go. Who, who would have known? You know, and he's left us with some of the most amazing um, memories of restaurants for me personally. Um, so Rockpool was an amazing time. But it was a time where um, I, I did my time there and I really enjoyed it. Um, and the Park Hyatt uh, kept knocking on the door. And uh, I said to them, you know, they invited me down there for a drink one night after work and um, Willie Martin was the GM. And I said, look, Willie, I said, hotels are just not for me. I said, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't because... You know, the chef is one um, person in the in the hotel and you have an executive committee and the chef's never on the executive committee, so you don't have a voice. It's always through the food and beverage director. And um, so they invited me down for a drink one night and we're sitting in the in the veranda bar and this is pre-Harbour Kitchen and Bar. You probably don't even remember that, Huck, but... Um, <laughs> I do, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, Someone, someone had just probably dropped six hundred bucks and number seven, and they walked behind us, and they were in the lobby. Someone was vacuuming the carpet, and they couldn't get their keys. They couldn't find a bellboy, and um, 
these guys were prattling on about me working for Hyatt. And I said, you know, I said, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I said, the reason I'll never work for Hyatt is I said that that guy's just dropped 600 bucks. He probably had someone park his vehicle when they arrived. It was this great entry, this experience, and now they've left and someone, it's only midnight and they're vacuuming the carpets, which could be done at three in, in the morning. No one's there to get his keys. And I uh, said, so that's that's the experience that is, you know, from a restaurant when they, once they step out the door, um, that's where you're, that's where it ends. And at hotels, it doesn't. And um, the guy said to me, well, that's why we want you to work for us. And I said, well, I don't know who you two guys are, but I know who Willie Martin was. And he said, well, actually, I'm the president of Hyatt. So if you want to be on the executive committee, you'll be on the executive committee. And... Um, so that started my sort of return to hotels. That led to you uh, traveling the world uh, for your career. And uh, a, a lot of people in Australia may know you from the bridge room and you and your wife, Sunny, kind of landed and, and delivered sunlight on a plate at the bridge room at a time that Australia was really finding its, its voice in regards to food and the bridge room just took off. But previous to that, not, not many people may know you were traversing the globe, um, doing some pretty incredible things. Yeah, I, I, um, I was right there at the opening of um, a restaurant called Mezzanine in, in the Grand Hyatt in Singapore. And Mezzanine, it, it just it changed restaurants significantly. Um, it was 400 seats, 450 seats, nine private dining rooms, nine open kitchens, full Cantonese, uh, it was in four languages, so I had Japanese chefs, um, Cantonese chefs who only spoke Cantonese. They didn't speak Mandarin. Um, and then we had Singaporean chefs, Malaysians, Thai, um, and then a whole lot of Europeans. And we used to do, I think it was a million dollars a week in revenue. It was a restaurant that just won best restaurant in Asia like five times. And Hyatt always put their restaurants above their rooms. Well, F&B did anyway. Um, Andreas was incredibly arrogant um, and very driven. And um, restaurants, if you didn't, if you're staying at the Grand Hyatt Singapore and you hadn't booked mezzanine when you booked your accommodation, well, that was your problem. You weren't going to get a seat just because you were a hotel guest. And they, they ran it like freestanding restaurants. And we, our P&Ls and all our ROIs had to, we were, we were responsible for that. The hotel was not going to help us in terms of um, appropriating revenue. So I learned a lot in that. I learned a lot about business. I learned a lot about um, creating wealth out of restaurants and, um, and what you could do. And the, when I, when I was telling the story before about when I was 19, I had a cookbook in my back pocket. Well, that was a hotel in Brisbane. Uh, I am digressing here, Hux. I know I am, but it, there is a, a method to the madness. But that that corporate chef who I worked for, Luke Thibault, um, was actually working for a guy called Adrian Zecker. And Adrian Zecker had started um, Beaufort Hotels. He he'd, His first hotel company was Regent that he started, and then he sold Regent and did Beaufort. And there was a Beaufort in Brisbane and Darwin and Sukhothai in Bangkok. And um, I'd met Adrian very briefly in Brisbane when I was about 19 or 20. And he said to me, I'm opening a new hotel company um, and we're opening a hotel in Bali. Do you want to come to Bali with me? And I said, where's wow. Bali? I didn't know where Bali was. <laughs> and I said, 
I said, no, no, I'm going to work for Neil Perry. <laughs> and I, that's when I came, I went to MCA. Um, and I hadn't really stayed in touch um, with Adrian. And this was probably 10 years later. And Adrian Zecker walked into Mezzanine in Singapore. And he's like, what the hell are you doing in this big factory? You know, which was a very big restaurant. And then uh, a couple of plane tickets and an invitation to Amankila um, was delivered to us. Um, and Sunny, Sunny, I'd met Sunny in Park Heights, Sydney, and we'd, she was in Chicago, and I was living in Singapore. So we ended up going to Amankila in East Bali, um, and we met the GM there. And he sort of said, "What are you guys doing here?" And we said, "Actually, we have no idea." And uh, we we're just invited by Adrian. And um, and then we got back to Singapore. So we had a, we stayed there for three days. It was fantastic. And we got back to Singapore and we had lunch with Adrian. And he said, so how was Bali? I said, it was amazing. And he said, well, why don't you go and live there for a couple of years and look after my friends? And Adrian, that's, that's his idea of a job description of a hotel general manager. You're going to live in one of his houses and look after his friends that come and stay. And that literally was our job description. Um, so we joined, wow. Amman, we joined Amman Resorts as um, joint general managers of Amakila. And um, since then, Sunny and I have worked together for 20-something years. Um, so we took this job, I'll never forget, as general managers. And I said to Adrian, I said, I don't, I don't know anything about being a general manager of a hotel. He said, fantastic. He said, you'll be the best GM. He said, the last thing I want to do is hire a general manager of a hotel. And uh, we, we literally, you were left to your own devices, you know. And the one thing about being a chef and also being, you know, sunny in terms of room di rooms division, you understand, you know, that you, you, we don't put our stuff in an in-tray on Friday afternoon and deal with it on Monday morning again. In a restaurant as a chef, the prep has to be done. You've got people walking in the door at 6 o'clock. You don't – if you're not fucking ready, you're not ready. And if you're not ready, you're going down. And if you go down, your restaurant shuts. You're out of business. And Adrian loved the idea that everything that we did at Amakila was you just did it. You just got on with it. And you made decisions and you were empowered to do that. And I think that's one of the – for me, that's when I suddenly went, you know what, I can do this shit. And I'd worked it out and I loved the hotel management. I loved being on the other side of it. I loved watching the revenue. I liked putting in systems. I'm a very systems-orientated person. Um, there are no gray areas in my, in my life and I'm working on that. But um, it's, there's no democracy and I'm working on that. <laughs> but I think you have to have a, a vision. And Adrian Zecker clearly had a vision. And um, when the Bali bomb happened, obviously we were we were two people who had a different skill set, being Sonny and I, and we were brought back to the corporate office in Singapore. And Adrian had this very ag aggressive uh, rollout that he wanted to do for Amman Resorts. So I was put into development, um, and Sonny was uh, headed up marketing and um, sales for Amman Worldwide. And I had a worldwide development role. Wow. I had sort of 12 years of just incredible, you know, I traveled, traveled for nine months of the year. Um, and then um, 
I'd, I'd sort of had this idea, inkling that I wanted to cook again and living in all these different countries, I kept a journal of my travels and I was almost becoming a better chef by not cooking, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, I was traveling, I was being a restaurant, I was being a customer in restaurants and I would leave and I'd, I'd sort of go home and write down what was so good about that, what was shit about that, why didn't that work, why, why would they have such an uncomfortable chair and why was the table the wrong height and that light just annoyed me all night and, um, you know, the music was just terrible and or there was, you know, I sound pretty depressing here, but and then there was the stuff that was just so amazing. So the last project we did was Amangiri in Utah and um, that for me was the most freedom that Adrian ever gave us to do a project. Um, and Amangiri won Best Resort in the World and it's won it twice. It was one of the most extraordinary projects um, because it was three people and one voice and it was all about the building and the architecture and the landscape. And um, it was one of the most creative periods. And during that time, I was thinking, I need to do this for myself. I need to, and I wanted to cook again. And the chefs in America that we hired for that resort, it was a disaster. Um, I hired them, so I take responsibility for that. But I ended up having to be in the kitchen um, just to train people and Sonny sort of said to me, I know you said you're going to do that for two weeks, but it's been two months now. And um, I said, yeah, you know what? I said, I think I want to open a restaurant. And she's like, are you fucking mad? <laughs> Tomorrow in part two, Ross tells us about the challenges and successes of the Bridge Room in Sydney and how it led to what may be the defining moment in his career with Woodcut Restaurant. This for me is now the, this is what we've been training for. This is what we've been traveling for. This is what we've been giving up our time for. This is what the compromises have been for. And Woodcut for me is, it's just the dream restaurant. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.